Welcome to Welcome to Welcome to Eric Gonzalez and Mike Olster. Welcome to Court of Opinion. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stir. All right. We've got some trade rumors that are taking hold. Uh, we'll go over the weekly recap. We'll talk about the one of the biggest blowouts that we've seen in years. Uh, streak that just got ended and see if the uh, heat are cooling off. And we'll finish off with everybody's favorite segment. What's the verdict? But to start, some trade rumors and reports have started to take hold that Damian Lillard once Ben Simmons when Neil Oshie was there before getting fired for bullying his staff. The reported move would have been CJ McCollum, first round pick and another player. But Dame came out today and said that these MFers just love drama. So completely refuted the reports. But let's talk about the potential of that trade and what that fit would be in Portland and CJ over to the 76ers. I mean, I've been saying it since last season that even before Ben Simmons got into this big drama, that it would have been beneficial for both the 76ers and the Blazers to make this move. I really don't see what the reservation is here because honestly, it's a really fair trade. If you think about it, the 76ers have to realize Ben Simmons is not like your franchise cornerstone building block guy. Neither is CJ McCollum, but they're both about the same level in the sense that they're both upper level players that can provide elite attributes in some areas of the game and can potentially be your third or second best player on a really good team. So it just so happens that Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid are a really bad fit together. I've always thought that um, they don't have good chemistry or good spacing based on each other's playing styles. And Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum are really repetitive and redundant too. Like it's basically just a bunch of isolation. It's my turn to do isolation. Now it's your turn to do isolation. We're just taking turns doing the same thing. It's not really um, something that's helping them. And to have two guards that are that small in the backcourt is killing them defensively. As you can see from their defensive rating, they're one of the worst defensive teams in the league. If they get Ben Simmons, they don't need him to be a great scorer because the team has scoring ability where they don't have as any defense, which apparently is the only thing that Ben Simmons can do at a high level aside from, I guess, playmake a little bit. So, and then um, on the other end, obviously, the 76ers have been missing an elite perimeter player to put alongside Joel Embiid for quite some time. And I think that Seth Curry has done a nice job of filling that role for them. And so has Tyrese Maxey. But obviously to get CJ McCollum would be an upgrade over both of those guys. For the 76ers, I think it makes a ton of sense. I think that for them, they, like you said, they get more spacing on the floor. I think that CJ McCollum gets to get out of Damian Lillard's shadow a bit. And obviously they're great guards and they're a great guard pairing overall, but they just haven't been able to get enough to get quite over the hump. And I think him playing with Joel Embiid allows them to play more of a free flowing offense. And as Embiid has said in the past, they retooled the entire roster to fit Ben Simmons style. So I think having a shoot first guard instead of having a pass first guard that can't shoot would do them a lot of good in this scenario and they'd get a first round pick and they'd likely get another uh, key player to, as well so I think that it would be a great trade for them to make and then on the flip side for Portland I think it would take some time for that all to adjust because Ben Simmons has been out for so long so I think if they make this trade they're they better 
protect that pick at least for the lottery because I envision that if they were to make this trade in the middle of the season right now they're sitting a little under 500 they're going to continue to be under 500 and Dame can only do so much so I I envision them having a potential lottery selection this year yeah I mean I, I really hope that they do this trade just because I mean even if you're not sure that making the move is going to get you to the promised land and get you the ring you definitely know for sure though that what you have right now isn't going to cut it You've already been trying to kick the tires on the same core for I don't know how many seasons now for both the 76ers and the Blazers. And you've had competitive years with those teams too. You've basically seen what it could look like in a, in a good case scenario and it's just never enough. So I think that the best thing that you can do is at least give yourself a chance by shaking it up and changing the dynamic of the team. Yeah, and I think the other thing to think about is with Damian Lillard, you have to wonder how much he would put up with Ben Simmons uh, attitude. If Ben Simmons comes in there and acts like a sponge, wants to absorb everything, wants to be the consummate professional and train hard every day, then Damian Lillard's not going to have any issue with him. But I think Damian Lillard is cut from the same cloth of a Kobe, Jimmy Butler, those types of players that are completely locked in, focused, and don't let in any outside noise and want everybody on their team to get the best out of themselves and propel each other upward. So if Ben Simmons tries the same things that he has in Philadelphia for years, I think that Damian will move more quickly to ship him out than probably any like top player in the NBA right now. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. All right, well... Talking about a little bit of this week, what'd you see that you liked this far from the week as we look towards the standings and the play of games? So there's been some surprising trends. We'll get into it um, in a little bit more detail, but teams like the Grizzlies have been playing surprisingly well. The Cavaliers recently lost a game, but had been playing well before that and are still somehow over 500 at 13 and 11, despite losing Colin Sexton. Um, you see the red hot suns, which we'll talk about more and their showdown with the golden state warriors this week, you have one team and the other streak. And then the warriors return the favor by ending the suns 18 game winning streak. And you have the jazz playing really well too. I'd say probably some of the best basketball of anyone. And then, um, for me personally, I think the biggest surprise overall though, is the Houston Rockets who have are honestly seven and 16 or terrible team, but have gone to win six in a row without Jalen green playing these last couple of games, um, been sidelined with a, I believe a hamstring injury for the last couple of weeks, but Christian wood has stepped up big. And I think that Christian wood is a, a name that a lot of people don't really talk about, but he's a very effective player that I think will be a name to watch a deadline because if you're Houston, you know, you're not really, competing this season to make a playoff spot. Christian Wood isn't really in the same timeline developmentally as Jalen Green, Kevin Porter Jr., some of these other young guys. He's a lot further along and is a player that right now could add a lot of value to a team that needs depth on the interior. So he, and also has a great contract too. So I think he's great value and he's honestly the biggest reason for why this team has been able to win six games in a row. Yeah, the, what the Rockets have been able to string together is surprising. I agree with you. I think that that team overall, they still have trade chips there. Like you said, Christian Wood, favorable contract. I think Eric Gordon would be great on another team 
right now. Uh, and there were talks before the season that they were potentially going to trade him. So the Rockets have some trade chips and capital that they can dish out to other teams to potentially take back some expiring contracts and some protected uh, picks or two second round picks. So the Rockets will continue to develop and to be good, but it is surprising to see them uh, perform well over those last six games. For me, we've talked about them from the beginning of the year. We're going to continue to talk about them through the rest of the year, but it continues to amaze me what the Bulls do night in and night out, and especially uh, what people are now calling the slash bros in DeMar DeRozan and Zach Levine, putting up 31 and 29 for uh, Zach and DeMar respectively in their game against the Nets. I think beating the Nets, the number one versus number two team in the East right now, it just shows that this experiment has worked extremely well with their offseason additions, what they were able to do. And it doesn't matter that they lost a second round pick because of these tampering rules as did the heat for Kyle Lowry, that the team that they have constructed right now is a championship quality team. And all of these guys mesh really well. It seems like they have great chemistry together, although winning does bring on pretty quick chemistry for anybody. So I think that as they continue to grow and they continue to get to know each other more, it's, they're just a, team to be reckoned with right now yeah i'm honestly surprised to see that they've been able to maintain their effectiveness um, on defense too they're not exactly like a lead on defense but i did expect them to feel the impact of losing patrick williams a little bit more even though patrick williams isn't really a guy who's expected to do the majority of scoring for that team he did play a very important role as a guy who was expected to be switching from the perimeter to the inside in a lot of their coverages and despite taking that loss, um, a pretty unique player who can also spread the floor of the three ball, they still have been humming along, beating quality teams. And they're one of the only teams that have been playing at an elite level that really have all their pieces, except for Patrick Williams, healthy, essentially. Else has had some sort of issue. For example, the Nets just lost Joe Harris um, for an indefinite amount of time. He's going to have to have surgery to repairs injury but they do expect him back at some point in the year but you got to wonder can the Bulls stay healthy that's the biggest question with them if they can stay healthy obviously I agreed with you they're probably going to be a top three or four seed the whole year yeah Joe Harris unfortunately out with that left ankle injury but it Brooklyn's still playing well so I think the flip side of this from a New York team the Knicks have been in a funk uh, Julius Randle came out and said that he feels like they're in a funk right now and they just can't seem to help crawl out of it. So we'll talk a little bit more about what we're seeing there, but I think that the Knicks coming off of last year, they're in their sophomore slump now with Thibodeau. Uh, the, this team is not really putting up the same defensive prowess that they did last year and they pretty much returned all their pieces and added a couple more. So We'll see if the Knicks can rebound and get into at least a play-in uh, as the season goes on. Yeah, I think that that's really been the main story is to see that there's been a lot of teams that we expected to be better that are underperforming. As you mentioned now, just the Knicks, another one of those teams. But it's not just the Knicks. You have teams like the 76ers, for example, that were expected by many to be one of the better teams in the East all year long, just sitting one game above 500 right now. So... And if you look at the standings, 
you probably wouldn't expect the Memphis Grizzlies to be fourth in the West, but that just goes to show you where everyone else is right now. Obviously, injuries play a big role in this, um, and we have to see what these teams are going to look like when they get their pieces back and are healthy. But as of right now, it really does seem like outside of the Suns and the Warriors, it's pretty much anyone's game on any given night. I agree. Well, moving on, speaking of a game that was not anybody's but the Grizzlies, the Grizzlies get the biggest win ever against the Thunder. They, I think, beat them by 70-plus points in that game, just complete domination overall. Grizzlies are now sitting fourth in the West after winning four straight without John Morant, who honestly has been having a, a breakout season, but I don't even know if to call it that because he has been good the last couple of years. So do you think that they'll finish top six? And do you think that this loss indicates the Thunder have completely committed to tanking uh, and that they're just that bad? I mean, a 73-point loss, I mean, we're talking about NBA teams here. You don't just lose a 73-point game because the other team is that much better than you. To lose by 73, it means that your team gave up on both ends. They gave up on offense and they gave up on defense. And if you look at the final score, it's indicative of that. They lost 152 to 79. That is absurd. And honestly, it is, I think, a negative reflection on the coach as well. I know it's tough if you're the Thunder. You, obviously, being on the Thunder, know that your organization and structure basically is setting you up to lose every year because you're hoarding lottery picks. They can't really seem to commit to any kind of direction yet, so they're not trying to win. And I think every player on the roster knows that. Last year and the years before, we were able to see them kind of surprise teams a little bit, and I think that part of that was because players like Shea Gildas-Alexander, Lugan Stortz, and some of these other guys were catching guys off guard because there was um, relative um lack of footage and film on these guys playing at that level but at this point these are players that they're scouting reports on you know the personnel and at this point i think that the teams just really give up because their their organization is not putting them in a position to win and they know that so i think at this point yes their season is basically going to be over and they know it but as a professional i think you owe it to your fans in the arena to at least try I mean, there is something to be said for trying to get better as an individual, and you never know um, where you might end up. You could get traded potentially. Every game matters, and I think that it's really a poor reflection on the coach to basically allow his players to adopt that sort of mindset where they can just give up because it shows that there's no accountability in that locker room. And conversely, on, on the Grizzlies' end, um, if you want to look at them from a positive standpoint, they did do this without John Morant, um, which is pretty impressive. That's their best player in leading scorer. It just goes to show you that the Grizzlies do have a little bit more depth than some teams are willing to give them credit for. And they are a team that I think can finish in the top six in the West. But I really do think that that's going to be dependent on injuries because if the league remains the way it is right now, I think they're a top six team. But if you start getting other teams, like, for example, the Nuggets back to full strength, if you start getting some of these other teams that we were expecting to do better um, for example, the Lakers, if they randomly turn it around, we're supposed to do better. We have a lot of teams like the Blazers that are normally in the top five that right now are struggling. And I think injuries played a big role in a lot of it. I do expect them to come in probably closer to the seventh or eighth seed when it's all said and done.
Yeah, I think the Grizzlies, though, will finish in the top six. Um, you, They had a four-game winning streak without their best player on the court. So they were already good last year, and I think they made some good trades in the offseason overall, getting back some draft capital uh, to get what they thought was a poor center in Steven Adams for Jonas Valanciunas. But the Grizzlies, uh, they're – I appear to be coached well obviously like you said this shows and exemplifies that they have more depth than others may have thought um but i think this is more indicative like you said of the thunder just giving up and you know that this team right now is in the process as philadelphia would have called it a couple years ago they're looking towards the future they have five years of like 30 plus first round picks or something ridiculous and Sam Presti is playing the long game, but you still have Shea Gilgis-Alexander. You still have Lugan Stortz. You still have, like you said, NBA players on this roster. There's some teams on a given night that don't give up an overall total of 73 points. It's few and far between now, but before it used to be much more common. And to lose by that margin is just embarrassing. Yeah, I do feel bad for Shea Gilgis because he really is an impressive player. He's extremely young, and he's honestly very underrated. Um, for a player that is as young as he is, to have put up the numbers he has as consistently as he has, um, I think that he could really make such a big impact to winning on a good team. But he's stuck in this situation where his team, even though, I mean, some teams would argue that Shea Gilgis-Alexander could be a foundational cornerstone piece to build around. But – Clearly, your team doesn't see that of you because every year they're trying to aim for another lottery pick to draft that foundational talent that'll finally get them to organize all this draft capital into something that resembles a competitive team. So, I mean, that's got to be tough because it's an indication that, one, your leadership has no intention to compete in the near future, which is depressing as a player that is as good as he is. And two, it shows that they have a lack of confidence in your own abilities because they're not willing to invest around you. And it shows. So I wouldn't be surprised if Shea Gilgis-Alexander leaves when this contract is up. Yeah, I would not either. I think they do need to surround him with some good talent, but he's just drowning over there after going from the Clippers uh, to them in, in the Paul George trade. But moving on from him, the Suns, Got a franchise record, 18 wins. They beat the Warriors, and that's the number one, number two seed in that conference. And then in the follow-up game shortly after uh, in the rematch at Golden State, the Warriors got the win and ended their record, splitting the series 1-1. So both teams right now are tied for first at 19-4. and They both won one game against each other. Who do you feel is a better team, and do you think that these are the Western Conference final favorites? These are obviously far and away the best teams, not just in the Western Conference, but in the NBA right now. These are definitely the finals favorites, one and two, and I don't really think you can argue that they're not the one and two. Um, but I would say, just looking at these rosters, I would probably pick the Phoenix Suns over the Warriors currently right now if they started a series today, just because I think that the way that the Suns score is a little bit more reproducible. It's safer. They get high percentage looks consistently. They're a pretty good defensive team. Obviously, the Warriors are elite defensively this season as well, probably even better than the Suns are. 
I just think that the Warriors probably are a little bit more reliant on Steph Curry playing well and having a good game or someone having a big game, whereas the Suns do it kind of by committee more often than not. Yes, Devin Booker is, is a main scorer for them, but you'll see lots of Suns games where he was never the leading scorer, and you'll see that all starters have 10 points or more. So I think that for them, they would probably be able over the course of a series um, to more consistently score and not have to rely on such tough buckets like the Steph Curry pull-up threes with guys draping all over him. I mean, he's able to hit that, but over the course of a series, what quality of shot do you really want to be getting on a consistent basis? A contested three with guys draped all over you or looks that are high percentage with good spacing, open corner threes, dive cuts to the rim and such orchestrated by Chris Paul. I mean, I just think that the Suns right now um, probably are a little bit more complete, but all this can change when Clay Thompson returns. If Clay Thompson returns even 80% of what he was when he was healthy, I think that it puts the Warriors over the top of everyone. Yeah, I, I think that the Warriors right now would go to seven games with the Suns, the way that they're made up. And honestly, it's a coin toss for that seventh game. But I still think that once James Weissman and Clay Thompson come back, I believe they're in five on five drills now, that there's no stopping them. Their point differential is still the highest in the NBA. They're playing clamp down defense. They have the lowest amount of points allowed per game with that current roster. And they're scoring, I think they're second in scoring right now behind the Hornets. So, or third behind the Hornets and the Jazz. So they're shooting at a phenomenal clip, but also clamping down on opposing teams. And then you're getting one of the best two-way players back in Clay Thompson that should open up so that Steph Curry doesn't have to shoot from the bleachers. And you get James Weissman, who's their future big man um, to come back. So I just don't see anybody stopping them in a five-game series. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if all those guys come back healthy and productive, I have to agree with you. I don't think anyone would disagree that they'd be the most talented team, most complete team in the league right now, especially given the way everyone else looks. But it's just a big if. You never know how these injuries go. When Clay Thompson returned from his last injury, everyone was really excited for his return. And he tore his ACL before he even played a game. So, I, I mean, I'm, I'm really hoping that doesn't happen. I'm excited to see him play again. Really excited guy to watch. But you never know with these kinds of injuries. He hasn't played in two years. So it is hard to predict what he's going to give you when he comes back. And if he'll even look the same on defense, too. I mean, this is talking about a guy who – um, a large part of why he's so effective is because he's not just a catch and shoot guy. He was really good on defense when he was healthy. Will he still have that lateral mobility after such significant leg injuries? It'll be interesting to see. Yeah. Well, speaking about healthy and leg injuries, report came out that Bam Adebayo had torn his UCL, has to get surgery on that, will be out until about mid January. Markeith Morris is still suffering from whiplash, even though he was supposed to come back for the Nuggets game back on the 29th. And realistically, the only proven rotation big man that they have is Dwayne Deadman. Uh, Aside from that, I think they have uh, Caleb Martin uh, and some other like Omar Ute 7 uh, just young players that don't have any proven minutes. So do you think that the Heat are going to be able to maintain their fourth seed, continue to play winning basketball when they have such a lack of front court depth 
uh, until realistically around after Christmas? Honestly, this is a tough one for them because it's not just those guys. It's also Jimmy Butler who, I mean, yeah, he's going to come back from this tailbone contusion that he has. It's not considered to be a major injury, but we have seen over the last couple of years that he is prone to missing games and he plays a lot of that front court for them too, especially on these undersized lineups. So they're also having to deal with him being in and out of the lineup. You're having to play guys like Caleb Martin, who are two-way contract guys that honestly he's, he's performed admirably, but these are players that are significantly below the level of production that you were expecting to get. And the Heat already haven't been an undersized team. This is a team that starts PJ Tucker as their power forward, and he's six foot five. And oftentimes they ask him to defend the center. If you've been looking at their games recently, they've been getting killed on the boards and inside. Even when they get a stop on defense, it seems the other team is able to just get another offensive board and get another easy bucket, which is demoralizing. Um, and if you look at their rebounding differential, it has really started going the other way. At the beginning of the season when the Heat were dominating and were healthy, they were one of the top rebounding teams on the offensive and defensive end. It was a big part of their success. At this point, they're starting to get out-rebounded pretty often. They're not getting consistent looks um, inside because they, they really do lack an interior presence when they don't have those big guys. Tyler Hero is able to penetrate, but it seems over the last couple of games when he's been asked to be the main focal point of the offense, having so much attention with no one else to take any pressure off of him is making it tough for him to get good looks. And as much as he is good at hitting the tough shot, if you have to rely on hitting tough buckets for your whole game, it's going to be tough to win those games. So, and I, I think that the Heat honestly probably had to address this even if they were fully healthy because going into the playoffs, they're going to have to deal eventually with guys like Jokic and Embiid who have traditionally given them problems when it comes to rebounding and defending on the inside. Bam Adebayo, as great as he is, is still an undersized center. I think it would be to his advantage to have a floor-spacing big man alongside him. If you're the Miami Heat, you basically have a second Duncan Robinson in Max Bruce, who is obviously, many of you will say he's not as good of a three-point shooter as Duncan Robinson is, but he's definitely a better three-point shooter than, than Duncan Robinson is this season. And if you watch him play, at the very least, he doesn't look scared and he doesn't look like he gets in his own head when he starts to miss. I really do think that the Heat could get at least similar production from Max Struess as to Duncan Robinson. And he honestly costs a lot less. If you're the Heat, Duncan Robinson, are you really going to start him long-term as a shooting guard forever? That really doesn't seem like something realistic if you plan on keeping Tyler Hero because he's not going to come off the bench next season. He's already said he wants to be a starter. Are you really going to make this an awkward situation where you have to start Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson and make it terrible for our defense. I don't think you can do that. And Duncan Robinson's proven to be a one-trick pony. When he's not hitting that three, he's not really contributing much else. I think that the Heat would be smart to trade Duncan Robinson for a guy like Christian Wood or Jonas Valanciunas, which probably, I mean, if I'm those other teams, I wouldn't trade those guys for Duncan but you never know. If you sweeten the deal, you throw something in there, you might be able to make it happen. And you finally get a true center with real size on the inside that can help Bam rebound and defend big men and also give you solid three-point shooting from the outside. 
We've seen that Jonas Valanciunas, I mean, he had a game this year where he hit seven threes in one game. They were calling him Jonas Nowitzki. I mean, these guys, Christian Wood, Jonas Valanciunas, I think that even though no one's talking about these two, they're both on losing teams that clearly are not going anywhere this year or making the playoffs. These are guys that they should be targeting that no one is talking about that could make a really big difference in their performance. Well, and I see both of those teams potentially being sellers. I don't know, though, that they would trade Duncan Robinson. I agree with you on the Tyler Hero logjam. I agree with you on Max Drews being a poor man's Duncan. And also, Duncan has just not been as good this year as compared to the last uh, year or two. So I think that the Heat could potentially use him as trade bait. But I think that Pat Riley is a bit uh, stubborn when it comes to admitting mistakes and it won't take, it'll take a couple of years for him to realize something is a mistake. So if Duncan continues to play poorly, I think he'll continue to say, we just gave this man a huge contract because we believe in him. And Duncan is a heat for life. Uh, but I think that it would take another season of Duncan playing poorly for Pat to say, all right, we're going to ship him out because if he ships him out, when the trade deadline hits and he's allowed to trade him, it shows that he gave him this contract and it was a mistake, which I think that would be too much of a pride hit for Pat Riley. Well, I hope that you're wrong because it would be an even bigger mistake for Pat Riley to hold on to him longer to wait for him to have another bad year to trade him because that would be the same exact mistake he made with Hassan Whiteside. If you trade the player after several years of struggling, it becomes that much harder to then move that player and get anything of value back for him, especially on a contract that is sizable. I mean, obviously five years, 90 million, there are guys out there making more, but I mean, it's still a decent chunk of money. I think that you'd be better off selling off on this guy before he's absolutely tanked his value. You know that Duncan Robinson is 27. He's still young, but realistically speaking, his, his athletic profile, his playing style you know that there's not really going to be like another giant leap for him. I think that it would be probably the smartest thing for him to try to get the most value that he can for him right now while he can. Well, it may be smart, but I don't know if they'll do it. But to our last segment, what's the verdict? You will ask me a series of questions and I will respond whether that person or situation is innocent or guilty. Let's do it. All right, so Zion Williamson was recently seen at a game. Twitter obviously had a field day as a picture of him looking very, very big and overweight, made its way onto the internet. As you know, he's still out and hasn't played a single game this year after having a foot surgery that many people say is delayed in its healing process because of all the weight that he's putting on it. So do you think, given how long he's taken to recover from this, and given what he looked like most recently, do you think that he is guilty of not taking his rehab seriously? I, I don't know. Um, I think that he's not taking the uh, weight loss component seriously. And I don't know if it's a factor of him not taking it seriously or the Pelicans not wanting to push or press on that issue. But he actually it was reported that he suffered a setback and they are going to pull him back from team activities uh, even more so as they continue to decrease his work so that he can come back from that broken foot. So 
Obviously, there's a lot of pressure placed on your feet on any given day. And if you continue to add weight there, then it makes sense how you could have a potential setback. So maybe he was taking it too seriously in terms of the rehab, but not the weight aspect. And that's what tweaked the injury and now caused a setback. Um, but I think it's difficult to make strides in uh, losing weight with any sort of impact activities when you have a broken foot. So it's a catch 22. You want to lose weight in order to not put so much pressure on your foot so that you can get back. But the more you put pressure on the foot, then you're going to tweak something and then you can't take off any of the weight. So I, I don't know. I, I think his uh, case is undecided. Yeah. People don't really realize the difficulty in staying in shape when you have a foot injury. Because it's not like when you have an arm injury, an upper body injury, where you can continue to run or do cardio or things of that nature. When you have the foot injury, it really does limit what you can do. And I have heard reports um, when he was coming into the league that he is just a unique type of body in the sense that even when he was apparently taking his diet very strictly, he just gains weight very easily, apparently. Just from working out, even at being at a caloric deficit, they said that he would gain weight just from simply lifting. I don't know how much this is true, but the Pelicans make it seem as though it's not really his fault. It's just his body type that seemingly its reaction to whatever it does is to gain weight. I really don't know how much of that is true. I really do think that the, it all starts with the diet. He's obviously not around the team 24 hours all the time. And being in New Orleans, I mean, let's be real. There's a lot of tempting food out there. So I would, I would be willing to bet that it's probably Zion Williamson eating poorly. So I am going to blame him for that. I'm going to say he's guilty because when you're a professional athlete, part of your job is to maintain your body at a level of health where you are available to be able to play and earn your paycheck. And I feel like he has not done enough in that department. Every team has a meal plan, provides you with the resources. There's really no excuse to not be eating right. It's not like he doesn't have the food available to eat correctly. I think it's just a lack of discipline. But anyway, moving on to our next case. LeBron James was recently fined for doing an obscene celebration dance, the Sam Cassell holding the balls dance after hitting a clutch shot. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar then recently came out and criticized him and says that goats don't dance. Full quote, he says, for me, winning is enough. Why do you need to do a stupid childish dance and disrespect the other team on the court? It doesn't make sense. Goats don't dance. Do you think that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was right? Is LeBron James guilty of being immature? Yeah, I, I think he is guilty i think that some of what lebron has done this season has been immature overall the swipe at isaiah stewart the celebration that i believe kareem abdul jabbar was talking about was immature and it just looks like a guy who doesn't really care and there's a difference between i think getting the weight lifted off your shoulders and not caring to like just really not caring and so i don't know if it's he's just fed up and knows that they're not going to win the season. So he's just doing his thing. Or if he just is like, 
you know what, I'm, I'm tired of being this like buttoned up personality that everybody needs to respect and cherish. And I'm just going to start speaking my mind more, but I agree with Kareem on this. I think that especially when you're LeBron, you have a standard and a level of professionalism that you need to uphold because you have been the face of the league for 15 to 20 years. And now at the end of it is when you're going to start acting out. I mean, Kobe didn't do that when he was leaving. Michael Jordan didn't do that publicly when he was leaving. So I, I think it uh, it's indicative of things going on behind the scenes that we aren't privy to, but I agree with Kareem. Yeah, for me, I definitely agree with Kareem. I think he's childish, but I don't think that it's because LeBron stopped caring. I think it's because LeBron cares way too much about the wrong thing. Um, obviously, we all know LeBron James very badly wants everyone to recognize him as the greatest. He has gone as far as to calling himself the greatest on, on camera in an interview. So we know he feels this way about himself. He wants everyone else to feel this way about him too. I know that he feels like he doesn't get his proper credit. Um, and I think that this season, we're just seeing the frustration show because he's trying to essentially show his greatness by, I guess, showboating and trying to embarrass the competition. But I, I really don't think that it's a good way to establish your greatness by doing that because he's doing it when he's having a bad year too. I'm not going to say that just because you're the greatest that you can't talk trash. Everybody knows that Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan talked a ton of trash. But the difference is they were talking their trash when they were winning and they also were doing it in a way that, you know, wasn't obvious to maybe some of the children watching that you were doing an obscene gesture or something like that. But I think the LeBron this season is just trying to overcompensate and show his greatness by acting out like this, kind of like a child, because he's trying to overcompensate for the Lakers poor record. There were reports earlier in the year that we've heard LeBron telling everyone, watch this, I'm going to shoot this free throw with my eyes closed trying to reenact the famous Michael Jordan free throw where he made that with his eyes closed ends up missing it badly. I just don't think these are things that you do when you're losing and you're not where you want to be. If you want to talk your trash, I'm all for it. I like talking trash. I think it's fun, but you have to be winning because if you talk trash when you're playing or when your team is playing poorly, it makes you look like an idiot. But moving on to our next segment, um, Kemba Walker has gone from former all-star and splash off-season signing to being out of the Knicks rotation. He has been held out of his last three games despite being healthy, and the Knicks are still losing games. Is Thibodeau guilty of unfairly making Kemba the scapegoat for the Knicks' struggles? Maybe he's guilty of that, but Kemba Walker started the season off relatively well and just continued to highlight why the Celtics didn't want him and why OKC was unable to trade him afterwards. He's a complete defensive liability. And so a team that formerly touted themselves last year on their defensive prowess now adds a starting point guard who cannot defend anybody to save his life. And so I think that given that and given where Thibodeau wants to be, you have guards like Derek Rose, Alec Burks, who are going to give you the offensive scoring and 
put up a better fight on defense. And so if you have that, it makes sense why you would end up pulling Kemba Walker out of the rotation. And so I think that Kemba shouldn't have gotten a two-year deal. Maybe they should have given him a one-year deal with the team option instead, but instead he gets a two-year deal. And I don't know that there are many other suitors for Kemba at that price point. So I don't really know why the Knicks overreached like that. It is a Knicks thing to do. So Kemba is just not putting up, I think, the same offensive numbers that made up for his lack of defense from before. So with the lack thereof of what he used to be, coupled with what he's always been, which is a defensive um, letdown, I it makes sense why he was pulled from the rotation. Yeah, I mean, for me, I can see why he's not starting. He's definitely a defensive liability, and Tom Thibodeau obviously is a defensive-minded coach. But this is why I didn't really understand the addition to begin with. You are a coach that prizes defense above all else. So you go and you add the worst defensive point guard that you can get. I really don't understand why you do that. Evan Fournier, the other big addition, he's not really that good of a defender either. And he's your other guy in the backcourt. And then you got R.J. Barrett, who um, spent some time in the backcourt as well. Another guy who's not really great defensively. So it's not really that surprising to see that they're struggling on defense this year. But I do think it was unfair to pin the defensive struggles pretty much almost as if it was exclusively on Kemba Walker. It's one thing to not start him, but to not play him at all. Are you telling me that you think that he is that bad, that he is not one of your top 10 players? He doesn't merit any playing time. They're still losing games. So it's not like the issue was just Kemba. They've lost every game that he's been held out of still. So I do think that Tibbs is kind of being um, a little bit overzealous with Kemba. I think that he's unfairly pinning the defensive struggles on him by saying, hey, we're just going to drop this guy from the rotation completely. It's this guy's fault. But you're still losing games. So I don't think it's him. I just think that this year the Knicks expected that what they needed to get over the hump was a little bit more offensive firepower and that they would retain the defense. And I think that the offensive additions ended up doing a lot more harm on defense to compensate whatever positives they may bring on offense. So I just think that it was bad personnel um, for that team. And I really don't know what they can do to switch it because it's not like those guys are sought after assets and the Knicks traditionally give a bad contract to players. So they really just got to hope that they can get some growth internally that guys like RJ Barrett will continue to develop and get better on that end that Julius Randle will find the focus in the defensive end again. He's been kind of slacking a little bit on that end too. So unfortunately I think that the Knicks are just not going to have the same success this season as last, but it is unfair to pin it all on Kemba. Yeah, I agree, but that's it for the show. Please like us, subscribe to us on all of your favorite podcast stations. We're on Twitter at Courts of Opinion. Have our website, courtsofopinion.com, and Instagram of Court of Opinion. With that, I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stair. Court is adjourned. Courts, courts of Opinion.